Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. And today we have with us Emily Popson, who is Senior Director at CallRail, who heads all things web strategy, demand gen, and customer marketing. So we'll, we'll cover all three today, or we'll try to. But Emily, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Jane. Awesome. Glad to have you and jump into so many things. We'll also be covering PLG, everybody, which will be exciting yes, will. to dive into. But before we dive into all of these wonderful things, tell us a little bit about how you first got into B2B marketing and your first marketing foray. I love that you asked this question and I've listened to a number of your episodes and heard everyone's stories and it got me really reflecting. I had a version of my story I've always told, but I was challenging myself to dig a little deeper. I used to say I was always meant to be a marketer, but I actually ended up a marketer by accident at a really young age. Someone exposed me to law and I decided like five years old, I'm going to be a lawyer. Wow. I'm going to be creative in my arguments, but I'm going to be analytical in my evidence. And I always wanted to use both sides of my brain. And I just thought law was the answer. And I was like one track mind all the way through college. I got a pre-law international business, got accepted into law school and then saw what it costs to go to law school. And I thought, (laughs) oh, forever debt. So a girlfriend that I was living with in college, we were, all of us were looking for jobs or our next educational step. And she said, well, I'm applying for this job with this software company out of New York city. Why don't you come with and apply too? They're looking for a number of people. And I was like, what do I have to lose? Let's go. I'm already into law school. Might as well see what other options are out there. And I got bit by the SAS bug. It was a startup out of New York that later got acquired by Constant Contact. And I started in a quasi marketing slash sales role where we were going around to restaurants and pitching them the importance of social media and SaaS for creating efficiencies in their business and their visibility for their brand in a competitive restaurant market. And I was like, oh, this is something special. Like I'm watching businesses' lives get changed. I'm watching them have aha moments. And like, I don't even know that I was aware at the time what I was realizing about my future, but I never looked back. And I just kept deferring law school for a couple of years. And then I went on to a couple other SaaS companies and the rest is history. And I've had every role from launching new websites to teaching them how to use social media when it was a 10-person company to being really in like more of a traditional marketing landscape, doing international marketing and catalog-based, billboard-based, event-based marketing to then later finding myself in a larger company where I can go deeper and really fine-tuning my what we think of today as like modern B2B marketing skill set. So I just got sucked up into the the SaaS B2B marketing wave. And now it's it's a, certainly a passion and something that I encourage many to explore as career opportunities because I, I really personally enjoy getting to do something that uses both sides of my brain equally and deeply. Yes, that's so true. This is a yeah. good moment of gratitude because it is a fun profession that we're in where A, no day is the same. 
You're mm-hmm. always doing different things. The challenges mm-hmm. always change and you get to be creative and analytical. Yes. Really good gratitude moment. Yes. <laughs> but I love that you came from law. You know, you hear a lot PR, journalism, that makes a lot of sense to transition mm-hmm. from that to marketing or you went to school for marketing mm-hmm. and stuck with it. But I love the turnaround from law into marketing. Do you think that you use any of the skills that you attained and lessons you learned in law school or in training to be a lawyer? in your everyday marketing? Well, remember, I didn't end up going to yeah, law yeah, school, yeah, but yeah. in pre-law, um, <laughs> pre-law. And my international business studies. Certainly, I think the importance of acquiring evidence, looking for insights, looking for indications that support your hypotheses. We do that every day as marketers. I have a hypothesis that perhaps small businesses are going to use different channels to consume software or buy software than the enterprise buyer. But you have to go and collect evidence to support that argument and then go pitch it or pitch it by way of testing it. Yeah. So yeah, I think certainly you use a lot of those those analytical skills. And then, I mean, there is an art. We're all marketers every day of our lives, aren't we? When I, Whether I'm trying to convince my husband why we need a travel stroller for our upcoming trip. You do, you do. Roller <laughs> system just isn't going to cut it on the airplane. <laughs> or you're making a case in front of a judge or you're slowly nurturing someone to purchase. I think it's all a very similar motion and skill set. It's so true. There's such a parallel. Mm. And I, I've often talked to myself about going to law school and becoming a lawyer back in the day because I love to argue. Like my parents yes. always told me you should be a lawyer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's funny it, that comes up. You're right. We do present our cases a lot in marketing and have to be persuasive. Right. And the the number of times I use the word hypothesis is so strange in marketing, yeah. you wouldn't think, but you do. It's all about testing and you have to have the hypothesis and be open to being wrong with your hypothesis yeah. too. So fun. I love the correlation. I never really thought of law and marketing, but it does have a lot of similarities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at CallRail, um, right now you told me you're overseeing demand gen, web strategy, and customer marketing. So right. how do you oversee all three and do you see them intertwining at all or pretty siloed? Oh, no. I mean, it is such an integrated marketing structure that we have and one that I haven't seen elsewhere, but really works for us. And I'll tell you why. So CallRail um, serves about 200,000 small businesses where we are focused on marketing in into your home services pros, your small medical centers, your travel agent offices, places like that. So at scale, many people and at scale. And we are a product-led growth company. Everything starts with our free trial and experiencing our product. So my demand gen team is focused on not just filling our database with leads, not just getting our brand message out there, but turning demand creation into demand capture and getting folks into that free trial experience and experiencing for themselves the value of our, our really quality product. But that all starts and ends with our website. Our demand gen team can do everything right in terms of having all the right strategies on the right channels in the right verticals. But if they get on our website and it's not optimized for conversion and we don't have the right buying paths for those verticals, for those journeys, then we're we're shedding revenue. We're shedding, especially when you're playing a volume game, every quarter percentage point is meaningful revenue loss or gain. So what my UX team, what my web strategy team, what the SEO team is doing is really what ends up proving if our, the work we're doing in the demand gen side ends up being fruitful for the company. And then once they're in the product and they're paying customers and users, 
our customer marketing function, both on the cross-sell, upsell, and advocacy sides of the house are critical for keeping, I think of it as an, an infinity loop that is our revenue engine. And it's harnessing the voice of the customer from our new customers, activating them, making sure they're onboarded onto our products, and then exposing them in really contextual, timely ways to other products and features that we can cross-sell and upsell them into. And then it just sort of feeds itself and drives, um, especially using usage-based pricing, whether you're driving up usage of the products they have or exposing them to new products, it's what keeps the world turning, So, as they say. Yeah. How do you keep your teams united and sharing information and collaborative really across the three? Because I know at so many organizations, it's so hard to break down those silos, right? You hear that term all the time, the silos need to be broken down. So how do you achieve that at CallRail? Yeah, it's a great question. I was just talking to one of my peers who leads partner marketing about this right before we got on this call. A couple of things I do. So we have a a hybrid organization. So not only do I run three functions, but everyone's distributed across either our headquarters in Atlanta or across many different states in the U.S., So I'm really intentional, one, about making sure there is one hour every week that they know we are all coming together, all three functions, to talk about what are the company's priorities, what does that mean for our priorities, and how does that intersect with each of their functional points in the journey. We always make sure that there's space and time for folks to share things they're working on that might not be visible, but are impactful. For example, you might not think the demand gen and the customer marketing folks need to hear from UX, but they do. It's really important that they're understanding the thought and the time being put into the layouts of their landing pages, the storytelling and the narrative that's being built out on our homepage, the experience in pagination across our site, all those little things that sometimes demand generers or customer marketers can get take for granted a little bit if you're not working in the goo every day and exposed to the time being spent on that. It really helps build empathy for the different functions. You know, I came from demand gen and customer marketing. There are some ego that can come along with that. Like I am driving this revenue. It all starts and stops with me. That's very common. I think that's like good and useful sometimes. But it's really important to be curious about the other functions that make everything you're doing possible. So I really try and foster time for that curiosity and that empathy to take place and build and to keep them exposed to what each other is doing. And also understanding, I see my role as helping them understand if this is a company initiative, this is how customer marketing plays into that. This is how web strategy plays into that. This is how demand plays into that. And then having setting an expectation for them that it's on them to make sure they're communicating to seek efficiencies to not create capacity restraints by working on this, but free up capacity by utilizing each other and not operating in silos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that they connect once a week, at least for that hour. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, I found doing something similar with my team, just having a team meeting, it's kind of a balance, right? Of making sure you're not wasting anyone's time if it's something they don't need to know about or chime in on, but also making sure everyone's aware of what the other are doing, because sometimes the greatest surprises come out of just collaborating and sitting in on a meeting that Mm -hmm. seemingly has nothing to do with, let's say, demand gen, has nothing to do with demand gen, it's on this side, but they overhear something and they're like, actually, we're seeing this on our side. That could probably change how you do it here. And I love when those moments happen. It makes me so Mm -hmm. happy. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Or we recently had a CRO engagement with our, our advertising agency trying to optimize a couple different journeys for specific verticals. And the demand team and the performance marketing part of the demand team was sharing on that at a team meeting. And then it got the UX team thinking, oh, wow, I can apply some of your learnings to the website in these key areas. And oh, that customer marketing landing page we're building, let's apply some of that similar thinking. So now yes. the whole team's activated on learnings that one team was focused on generating. It was, it's really valuable. The other thing we do that, I don't know, I know a lot of people are hybrid right now, so I'll share this because it's really been probably the shining star of our weekly meetings is for the last two years, since we came together as a three function team, every single meeting starts with an icebreaker. And I know people like shiver at the word icebreaker, but <laughs> it's just bring a funny question to get us all yeah. loose and learning about each other, learning each other's quirks, because that is the thing you lose when you're not in an office. And I've been remote a very long time, way pre-pandemic. And that is the only thing I missed when I went remote is like bumping in each other. Oh, you love sushi. You eat sushi yes. every Tuesday in the office, right? So we start every meeting every week with an icebreaker. And even if it means I have to cut things from the agenda, I let it go as long as it needs to go to hear everyone's yeah. answers. And we go, every single person has to answer the question and we learn about each other and we laugh and we bond. And it's just really special time together as marketers. I love that. It's so important to have that personal connection with your team mm -hmm. and learning about them. Cause you get so bogged down in just mm -hmm. all the day-to-day -day things you have to do, but you have to carve yeah. out that time to remember that everyone's humans and it helps Absolutely. everyone work better together. I love that I might steal that icebreaker steal idea. <laughs> I started doing with my team, we do once a month, um, like a team lunch where we're not allowed to talk work. And I started bringing in questions to like, just get the banter going. And some of them are funny and some are just like learning about each other. And yeah. the things you learn, like one person on my team was a DJ in a past life, like international would fly to different countries. Just the fun facts that you find out about your team is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the one today was what is music we would find on your old iPod that you would be embarrassed if someone overheard? It. it was really interesting to hear. <laughs> what was yours? We've also asked like, if you could have the legs of any other animal, they get really creative, but like, <laughs> the upper half of your body was still human. What animal's legs would you like to have? Like who but, thinks no, it Where do you funny. get these questions? Do you come up know. with them all or? All, I assign someone different every week that has to bring the question. Love it. That's mm -hmm. really cool. Very creative. That's awesome. It reminds me during the pandemic, I forget the name of the game, but Esther Perel, I think it's her name, the mm -hmm. famous therapist and psychologist, yeah. but she came up with a board game that was getting people as they were starting to like come out of isolation and like meet in face to face again, that was getting them to ask questions of each other to go a little deeper and like beyond surface level. So it, it just reminds me of that game. It's really cool. I, I, need that. Need to buy. I just love yeah. questions and being curious. I'm gonna yeah. have to Google that after this. Yeah, I'll find the link. Okay. <laughs> and you've mentioned a few times and I love it, CRO. I'm all about mm -hmm. that. If you don't mind sharing, it could be from call rail or past positions. What are a few wins that you've seen on the conversion side like that have helped with your web strategy and just ultimately conversion optimization? Sure, I'll, I'll share two. So, cause we do CRO on our main site and of course in our digital landing page strategies as well. And we, we run those programs a little bit differently. Hmm. On the website, I mean, we have a really robust testing strategy. As I mentioned, everything starts and stops with our website. It doesn't matter if the demand gen team is drumming up lots of interest. If the site isn't optimized to convert those visitors into free trials, 
it's all for nothing. We did a pretty robust test. When I came onto the company, the whole site was in this really moody, dark background, light text, just a moodier vibe that really resonated with a prior creative director. But, you know, we sat back and asked ourselves, is this really what the the spirit of our company? Is this really the spirit of our users? Is, Is we pride ourselves on democratizing software for small businesses and making it really accessible. Does this feel accessible? So we flipped the whole color palette of our site on its head and did lighter backgrounds with darker text, changed out all the imagery, uh, which is a, that's a massive, that's not a lightweight experiment, certainly, but it was based on a pretty simple hypothesis of is the dark versus light, which one's more approachable and going to convert better. And we saw significant double digit increases in conversion rate to free trial by doing that. Ooh, but also smaller great. things like on your free trial sign up, if you are a PLG company, your free trial sign up page or your freemium sign up page, whatever your journey looks like. I mean, that is where it truly all starts and stops in yeah. terms of getting them into your, your buying journey. So we test that constantly. Is the pattern on the backdrop distracting or adding and keeping them engaged? Is Should it be four inputs or six? What happens if we make this one field optional versus not? What happens if we tell them on the free trial page what they're signing up for versus not? And sometimes Mm. we're shocked. Sometimes the hypothesis might be if we remind them the value that is behind this form, they're going to complete it at a higher rate. And we've actually found for our buyers, it distracts them more than it adds. And they convert at a higher rate if we keep them really focused on completing the form and not consuming content on that page. So yes. Yeah, we have a constant testing happening on our site on any given day. So those are some of the the bigger ones we've done. And then on the CRO lander page, with the digital experiences, it's all about making sure the message that they're starting with is the message they're being met with at sign up. You're not distracting with too much else. So we've played around with a lot of verticalization in particular. That's typically how we're using our CRO journeys. And I think that by it, verticalization proves out time and again, making sure that imagery is vertical specific, the language is vertical specific, the value prop is vertical specific, the logos on the page are vertical specific. Anytime we take a step further into verticalization, it seems to prove out. That's so interesting. How do you deal with on landing pages? It makes sense. You can be hyper-personalized and very verticalized, right? But on your website, it's a little bit harder depending on what your tech stack looks like, which we'll get into. But Mm -hmm. what do you do between the landing page or really on the website when you can't be as verticalized? How do you deal with that challenge? Yeah, it is challenging. I think at the at the end of the day, you have to be confident in who your primary site user is. So the one challenge we have at CallRail is, you know, we serve SMBs, but we also serve thousands and thousands of SMBs through their marketing agencies. So our, our primary site users are not just SMB owners and marketers, but also mm-hmm. marketing agencies who are serving those same types of businesses. So we're always in this constant struggle of making sure we're speaking to the SMB, but also speaking to the agency and making them both feel heard and seen and served on our site. 
And I think what we have found is simpler is better there. Our, we know at the end of the day, our core value prop as a company and our core mission and vision are the same for any user. So staying true yeah. to that and allowing the more subtle parts of the experience to bring in the verticalization. Using qualified chat is our chat tool, for example. Mm. Using the, the data we have behind running behind qualified to make sure, well, well, even though they're on our homepage and it is for all, for all users, we don't do verticalization on our homepage right now. We make sure the chat experience they're being met with is personalized when it makes sense. On the pricing wow. page, if you're an enterprise buyer, making sure there's a way for you to get in touch with an enterprise sales rep if you're not quite ready to start your free trial. Things like that, just making sure the right paths are available for further exploration, depending on who you are, your size, and your industry. Perfect. And tools like Qualify make it easy to add that personalization in. That's cool. Yes. One last question on CRO that we could spend the whole session okay. talking about this <laughs> is, have you found the hypothesis that everyone has always said in marketing, fewer form fields equal higher conversion rate? Do you think that that still tends to be true or has anything changed on that front from what you've seen over the years? Generally speaking, I think that statement is oversimplified. While conversion rate optimization itself is focused on optimizing that point of conversion, you always have to zoom out and make sure that you're serving the whole of the revenue objective. So what I mean by that, speaking from personal experience, you could optimize your form down to fewer form fields, more optional form fields, and probably increase your conversion rate or your free trial rate if you're PLG. What is the quality? Are you sacrificing quality in doing that? Mm -hmm. Are you sacrificing your ability to understand the user and provide the right experience on the other side of that form? Are you sacrificing the ability for any sales team or even self-service motion that's wrapped around your experience to be sacrificed due to that? We have seen that if we take it back too far, require fewer fields um, or make certain fields optional, we see increases in spam, low quality users that don't end up paying, um, we, which of course increases or decreases conversion rates on the other from free trial to customer and reduces revenue or is no net gain in revenue despite seeing. So you never want to take one metric in vain. Even if you see a win, you still want to back that win out and see, okay, and how is that win translating down mm -hmm. the funnel through to revenue? Yeah. Always testing, right? You always test the number. You must be always going back and forth between like five fields, four fields, three yeah. fields, back to five and just yeah. testing things. I do feel out. like we have four, the, the sign up form dialed in at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. I'm more interested in how do I keep more people on the page longer, exploring more, shortening their journey, things like that. Mm. I feel pretty solid about our sign up page right now, though yeah. it's a constant journey, certainly. Yeah. Everyone check out the call rail sign up yeah, page for inspo. <laughs> but again, it works for us. What works for yeah. us won't work for all. Very mm -hmm. good reminder. Mm -hmm. And you've touched on PLG. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on a PLG motion and what does it take for anybody who's trying to either switch over to it or to get started with PLG and thinks that's the, the motion for them? What are your mm -hmm. thoughts there? Yeah. Well, first, so a couple of things. First, I was sharing with you before we even started. I primarily came from an enterprise background before CallRail, very much used to a demand gen 
strategies to drive MQLs and ultimately SALs, of course, making sure those are high quality, getting folks or accounts into the hands of our sales reps and leaving it to the sales rep to determine if that that individual or that, that buying group or their account is going to ultimately try, test, pilot, or buy the product. What's What I've become more passionate about is being part of a product-led growth company, because as a marketer, what that allows you to do is take, own the journey all the way up to the point of the, of the buyer, buying group or account experiencing your product. So it's really on you to, as a marketer, to not just increase brand awareness, not just getting them to bite on content, not just getting them to land on your page, but making such a convincing argument for why they need your solution in their stack, in their life to spend dollars or hours or minutes of their precious time and and resources experiencing your product to ultimately get them into the trial or into the the premium version. And it's really valuable. It's a lot really fulfilling as a marketing team. It's really fun to lead marketing teams that get to work in this environment. But what I see happening with enterprise companies, traditionally enterprise companies, um, or maybe even if they're not enterprise, traditionally non-PLG companies trying to make the switch, I think the problem I'm observing is that they haven't built their product experience to meet that journey. And they're probably, I imagine, experiencing a lot of drop-off right now. That's what I'm hearing through the grapevine. I have a very close friend who has a similar role to mine at another software company and who's going through that journey of saying, no, we want to be PLG, which I do think is the right objective. But PLG does not start and stop with marketing. It starts and stops with the product. There is no point in in introducing a PLG motion in your go-to-market side if your product is not ready to meet that user that moment on the other side of that sign-up form with a beautiful onboarding experience that's self-service, a beautiful free trial or freemium experience that's instantly adding value and optimized to do so in a really hands-off way. There's ways to introduce sales really elegantly in on the other side of the trial or during the trial. We do that, I think, pretty well at CallRail, where they, we have a sales group that's there if you want it. They are not getting involved until you are in trialing the product experiencing. So there's some context to the help that they provide. Yeah, if you have the opportunity to work at a PLG company, or if you're evangelizing PLG at your current company, as a marketing leader, revenue leader, sales leader, your strongest partner tomorrow needs to be your product team. And you need to get in there together and be mapping out. Here's what it's going to look like on go to market. How do we have equity on the other side of the trial form or the premium form in the product experience? Otherwise, we don't do it. Wait until you have the product experience in a true PLG state before you you execute the go to market. Yes, I have seen that now. I didn't even realize until you said it, but that is what I'm seeing with those mm-hmm. that are are kind of shaky on starting PLG is that lack of the onboarding experience yeah. being built out. That's interesting. Does your team own that onboarding experience and product marketing or how is that set up at your team, at your company? Sure. So onboarding is owned by a 50-50 with product management who owns our, we use the tool Pendo, great tool. Any PLG cool. company should be using Pendo. We love Pendo. Pendo is the tool we use to execute on a lot of our onboarding flows in the application and then customer marketing and product marketing partner on that experience. It's led by product marketing and executed though by product management. That's a great combination. Again, just Mm -hmm. like sharing the sides and making sure everything makes sense to everybody involved because you can be so siloed, like siloed again, but 
just blinders on, right? Focused on mm-hmm. your agenda and then everybody else can chime in and open up your eyes to so many other mm-hmm. things. Oh, of course. Of course. I have a great example of that. I I mean, we just launched a new product and it's a premium product and we're on the website side thinking, well, before the website in the, in our PR narratives, our our brand narratives, we're injured folding in some talking points that support this new product. That's really valuable. And we, again, a way we've democratized certain tools for the small business, something we're really passionate about. And we we've done the work to take the brand narrative in that direction, the demand gen programs in that direction, the website in that direction. But we need to make sure the onboarding experience and the checkout experience, because now we're introducing a premium product into your free trial journey. You need to make sure your checkout experience is really intuitive because you you don't want to sacrifice the user over the end user, the future customer and revenue over confusion about what products do I need to have? What products are optional? What are my various price points I have available to me? It takes a lot of reps and a lot of collaboration across revenue and product to make sure that the, the whole journey is optimized for revenue in the end. Yes. Yeah. What are some things touching on that that you think whoever's owning it, product marketing, customer marketing, product itself, that you should be testing along the user journey when they're inside the platform and like testing it out? What are some parts of the experience that we should be testing to see what works? Yeah. So we have a really great partner in our product team that we call our our product growth team that partners really closely with my org and the product marketing org as well. And things we have experimented with are what is the first thing you meet someone with on the other side of the trial form so that now they're in their account for the first time? Should it be an onboarding flow? Should it be a questionnaire that helps you understand their core objectives so that you can simplify the onboarding flow for them. Some users want that, some users don't. And you might even find it varies by vertical, but having the right tools in place as a, if you really want to be a great PLG company, you need data, you need analytics, and you need the tools in place to collect that data. So you can understand if it's ultimately netting greater uptake on the product and greater conversion into revenue. Some other things is when to expose users to other premium features and premium products. We found that doing that in a really contextual way is best. So if you have a product where there's a premium feature that makes this certain workflow even easier or better or more delightful, expose that to them, but make it clear that it's a little, it's gated, it's grayed out. It's There's subtle ways to do that, but right there where you have a grayed out, give them the opportunity to unlock it and add it to their free trial or add it to their paid plan if they're post-trial. Things like that is really how you get into like growth hacking to revenue again, and making sure that all the, the work and energy and the effort you're putting in across your you know, you put, you build collaborative teams, you hire great people, you build great products. We'll now get them all working together to optimize for revenue. You can, yes. you know, we're all revenue marketers in the end, right? It, it, so if you're true. not driving revenue, what are you doing? I don't yeah. know. It's so true. I mean, that's why we're always aligned with sales and product, yes. right? Because at the end of yes. the day, the entire company's goal is to hit revenue and be like, you know, good people and enjoy life along the way. But at exactly. the end of the day, you're working towards revenue. Exactly. It's so fun because I'm writing down some ideas that that you're kind of sprinkling in throughout. Because there's so many things that you can test, like little things here and there, just mm-hmm. exposure, right? Exposure marketing. I don't know if that's a thing, but it should be. Mm-hmm. But inside the app, right? Making sure they see what they don't yet have or during the free trial or freemium, if you have like 
just making sure they can test it out. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Gata be like, this is only here during your X day free trial, just so yeah. they're aware of it. And it creates that FOMO, right? Like, what's this? Exactly. This looks really cool. I want to learn more. Maybe I'll talk to sales. So exactly. Exactly. So many fun nuggets there. I wonder also going to the demand side of PLG, especially now in 2023, how have you seen or what have you seen that's working to drive signups right now? Like you don't have to give away the secret sauce, but what channels are working and or how has that changed over the past couple of years? Yeah. At the highest level, what I'm seeing, two things really stand out to me of late. One is now more than ever, considering any one channel a panacea to any one industry's softness and volume is never going to be your way out. Every channel needs to be evaluated through the lens of and of your personas, your industries, your vertical, however you're organized. I know my performance marketing and demand gen teams do exercises every week to say what is working, what isn't, and where are we going to reallocate the resources that were previously being spent on what isn't. If you have a 30-day remarketing program running for a certain vertical across display networks, and you're seeing really low conversion rates and uptick, and you're just bleeding money, but you're seeing some green shoots over in maybe LinkedIn, maybe not LinkedIn, whatever one social channel in particular, it seems to be proving more fruitful for that persona or vertical divert that money. I mean, that's what we're all about at CallRail is helping easily expose where your marketing is turning into revenue and where it isn't and making it easy for you to divert those dollars elsewhere. And that's what we hold our own internal demand gen teams to as well. The other thing that has been, this is certainly nothing new, but sometimes overlooked, not talked enough about is the importance of the trust building channels and tactics. I mean, yeah. what the work we do and the part, the time we spend talking about our G2 strategy, our third-party validation strategy, our voice of customer campaigns, the time I spend auditing our campaigns for the percent voice of customer is utilized. I mean, these are really seemingly obvious things that I don't see most marketers and marketing leaders paying as much attention to as they should. You should be measuring how frequently the voice of the customer is being utilized in campaigns is a certain percent of every nurture program, email or through other channels, utilizing the voice of the customer. Are you optimized on all your review sites? Do you have a, a review site and reputation management strategy in place so that the second you get a bad review, you have an internal process that kicks off to manage that, delight that customer, understand that customer, make them feel heard, and then use those learnings to improve every future customer's experience through marketing and through sales and through the product. So that's really hot for us right now and something we're having a lot of fun. I think a lot of the trust platforms do a great job of providing some interesting intent data that you're not going to get through some of, if you're using demand base or six cents or elsewhere yeah. um, and making sure you're layering all that into the decisions that you're making. So amazing. Be- one quick win for everybody listening. Mm-hmm. If you haven't done this yet to look at all of your campaigns and check mm-hmm. the percentage of voice of customer. Yes. You're so right. I don't think I, I mean, I, I do try to bring customer insight and testimonials and quotes, mm-hmm. but I've never looked and measured to make sure that that is being leveraged to a certain percentage in every yeah. campaign. That's such yeah. a good idea, just as a, a gut check yeah. QA 
kind of thing for every campaign. Huge Even to bringing do. this kind of full circle, my customer, mar- head of customer marketing, she has worked with product to experiment. Even within our application, are users more likely to try another product or feature if you tell them about it or if you provide a quote of another user who has been utilizing it. And time and time again, we have significant higher uptake on that new feature or product if we use the voice of the customer in the in-app. Genius. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it's not something that we think to do. I'm reading a book right now called Machiavelli for Women. It was recommended Mm. to me. It's very interesting. I highly recommend. But they say that it's really important to advocate for others because when you advocate for yourself, it's not taken as seriously. So if if more people advocate for each other, it creates a better world. It's so Mm -hmm. interesting. It's the same like you when you're inside a product and you're seeing just, you know, the usual messaging and pop ups and okay, do this. Here's a tip. You listen to it. But if you see here's a tip from this person who's a peer who's at a different company in your industry and your role and he does X, Y, Z, you're much more likely to to do something like that because there's like a person tied to it and it's not seen as marketing as much, right? I'd even pay attention for bigger campaigns. I'm notoriously a stickler for this. How frequently are you saying I and we? How frequently are you using first person pronouns versus second or third? I think paying attention to that, it's very easy to get caught up in, I launched this, we launched this, we can't wait to show you this thing we created for you. It doesn't hit the same as when you say, you are doing this and your peers are doing this and you will see value. This is what your future looks like with this product or feature set in your tool belt. And Again, paying attention to the subtleties and the simple things like that. We can grow tech channels all we want, but if we're not making sure we're communicating effectively and pleading our case effectively and speaking to people, it's kind of all for nothing. I love that. There's so many great tips. Like I'm inspired, so I'm sure our audience will be too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, we touched on this a little bit before and you've already mentioned a few, but do you have any other tools that are must-haves that that you leverage and recommend to all marketers. Yes. So I mentioned Pendo. Pendo, Pendo. I'm going to say it 10 (laughs) times. Take a drink of coffee every time you hear me say Pendo. Pendo. (laughs) Oh, it's such a a fabulous tool. Uh, The analytics, the experience, the flexibility. You don't have to know how to code to do in-app marketing. And I, I see it utilized a lot of different ways. Sometimes product management owns it. Sometimes even though it's running in the app, marketing owns it. It doesn't matter. I just get it and use it and figure out how yeah. it can be valuable to anyone trying to do PLG or has been doing PLG should be using Pendo in their tech stack. I've mentioned qualified. Cool. I think it's the best chat tool out there personally. But a couple others, I love Postal. I know Sendoso and Alice and others are are big names in the like offline marketing, experiential gift marketing space. But I find Postal to just be such a hidden gem in that space. So they're not so hidden anymore. We use it from everything from incentivizing our advocacy motion to incentivizing free trials when we're in a pinch and targeting like Bofu leads with a little bit juicier carrot to doing some internal awards and recognition and appreciation to putting on events and experiential marketing packages for our upmarket motion. So I just think it's such a nimble tool um, that provides a lot of value at a relatively low cost. Let me think. I I did write... um, Oh, another one. I know AI is 
Uh, you've had All a couple of episodes on AI. I have listened to them. <laughs> have you heard about AI? We ourselves <laughs> as call, a call reel. It, it's kind of funny because we've been offering AI uh, powered tools since 2016. It is not a new motion for Love us, it. but it's certainly been exciting to be able to talk more about those, which were not yeah. our bread and butter um, in terms of, or not really our flagship products that we were known for. And now we get to talk a lot more about them. But yes. I'm also encouraging my team to think about how can you create capacity? Many marketing teams across the B2B space are resource constricted right now for a variety of reasons. And that might be reduced spend, that might be reductions in headcount or or hiring freezes, whatever it might be. We're all being asked to mind the business a little bit more. I think AI tools can really help create capacity where there are roadblocks. So some tools, my SEO team is working on a new process for doing high quality SEO or AI backed SEO content to increase our output and our ability to operate or act on revenue generating opportunities. And my demand team is currently trialing a tool called Jasper. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So they're really, it's really exciting. I think they're still getting the kinks out as many AI tools are, but there's some really quick wins we've gotten there when our content team has had a backlog and we have a new campaign bubble up like around GA4. You know, we all just went through the transition on July yeah. 1 and we have integrations, our own tool, CallRail with GA4. Uh-huh. So supporting our customers, when we realized how many folks had not yet made the switch, we were like, we need to get a campaign up to meet them on the other yeah. side of the July 4th holiday. So as many teams, we have SLAs around that sort of thing. I, we got the Jasper tool and we said, all right, Jasper, you're going to help us build this campaign. Here's the creative brief. Here's our key messages. And it, it lets you say, I need six tweets and a landing page and three emails and write them all as if they're cohesive. And, you know, you still need a human. Yes. I, I very much believe humans still need to be part of the process, but it got those first couple rounds of draft creation done in yes. minutes so that we can crank out this campaign in a much more efficient manner. We're playing around with some of the like art generation stuff. I don't think that's all quite there yet, but anywhere you could be using AI to just create capacity, like give your teams more space to be creative and apply their, their unique skill sets to the marketing. So they're not so bogged down in some of all the like tactical goo all the time. Yes. I love that. And I love the way you phrased it too, how to create capacity with AI. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you're doing. Cause you're just I've started to incorporate it into just everything I do and it doesn't replace anything. It just speeds things up. It yeah. makes things so much faster so that we can focus on, like you said, like more creative things. And of course, editing what mm-hmm. comes out. And like yesterday, I think I used it with my team to brand a campaign, like a, titles and what we were naming this package that we're offering. And it was, A, it was just fun to spitball with your team on this because some ideas are ludicrous that it comes right. out with. But it got us to the right package name with yeah. some human tweaks in like three minutes. Mm-hmm. It, was in, it was so much faster than if we were having a brainstorming session, just us as humans, it would have taken the whole half hour meeting, but we got to cover so much more. beautiful too about that, that exact use case, because you're also eliminating a little bit of self-consciousness. Like you all can react to what the AI is recommending and you're taking the human mind and the context you all have to refine and refine and also get some laughs along the way versus like trying to break (laughs) through the hesitancy, break through the self-consciousness that exists in brainstorms. You kind of just like crack, crack that right open. And instead you're all on like level playing field reacting to the AI. I really like that. 
Yay. Normalize it, right? Like make it a part of just every day. Like, oh, let's ask ChatGPT or Jasper. Jasper, I hear, is is much better at brand voice. Like you can train it to speak the way that your brand. Yeah, that's the very first prompt, I think, is you have it scan your website or a piece of content and it determines your brand voice for you at the start and then applies it to everything versus ChatGPT where you have to like remind it your brand voice or prompt it to use your brand voice, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. I need to check it back out, Jasper. I think I knew about it before ChatGPT, but I hadn't mm-hmm. tested it out. I need to go into it. Yeah, they, they've come a long way. I know there were a lot of kinks about a year ago when I think they've been around since the beginning of 2021 or 2022, yeah. but it's come a long way. And I'll just say one more thing on the creating capacity. It's a passion for me internally as a leader, but also something that CallRail really holds near and dear to our hearts as a company. And I I don't know that all of your listeners have the gift of being a marketer at a MarTech company. I think it's really fun to market to marketers and marketing-minded folks. It's true. But I'm also having a lot of fun getting my team to think about how we can use our own tools and AI tools internally to create capacity so that they can live and breathe the capacity that we could create for our customers. We have best-in-class SMB conversation intelligence tools that are AI-powered that, you know, if you think about businesses that have call centers, a lot of calls happening or a lot of their calls, their like their bookings come via call. Like you would call your gutter cleaner, you would call your power washer, your pest control company. That's a lot of quality control and quality management to have to oversee. When you have AI-backed conversation intelligence tools, we can transcribe that call for you automatically. We can spot keywords mm-hmm. for you to inform your SEO strategy. We can tell you the sentiment of your calls so you can spot trends in, are you having more negative calls lately? Positive, neutral. Amazing. We can suggest next steps to take after that call based on a summary we've written on that call. All these things that AI is doing, I don't feel threatened by it when it is And I don't think anyone else should when it's used in this way to help create capacity for humans to do what humans do so well, to use it to spot trends more quickly than you ever could otherwise. So you can act on problems before they become bigger problems. That's really the power of AI. And I think that's what we're trying to do at CallRail. And I'm trying to instill that same passion and focus in our teams internally. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. I think there's so many ways to leverage that tool. And I definitely want to look myself into CallRail too, because there's so much insight you can get from calls that you can leverage in every aspect of marketing from the website itself to customer marketing, of course. So there's so much to use. Conversations in general, whether they're happening over the call, over chat, over text, it's a gold mine of insight and it's about having the right tools to extract that insight and not have to spend man hours reading or listening to conversations, but to ha- using AI to mine those insights and make them accessible and actionable for you. It's such a game changer. I mean, to say AI is a game changer feels just tired and cliche at this point, but which is funny because we've been at this for like less than a year as an industry. Yeah. But it's true. It's going to change the future of small businesses. I personally don't think it's threatening to the human role. It it really accentuates the what humans bring to the table and allows us to do what we do well more quickly. Exactly. It just, everyone has to change how they're working, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, the biggest impact is writers, right? But yeah. it doesn't have to replace writers. It shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It should change how writers are creating. Like if they 
get on board and are proactively leveraging this stuff, they're gold. Like that's the person you want to leverage and then you can create more together. There's just so many possibilities. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. Well, Emily, thank you so much. I have so many notes and things for myself to apply. So I, I'm sure our, our listeners have the same. I appreciate you being candid and sharing a ton of tips and advice across the spectrum and PLG, everything really. Yeah. Well, let's stay in touch and talk PLG in the future. This was great. You have a great show here and I'm really honored that I got to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. I'll have you back to chat local marketing another time because we could have a whole nother episode on that. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks, Emily. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. Like, review, share with a friend. We appreciate the love. Thanks, everyone.